When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This is Wheelberries. I'm Dan Roth. And I'm Sam Abuel Samet. So first a word about what we're doing, because this is our first episode and it's a new venture. But I think really uh, we wanted to talk about things that are actually important to the automotive space and, uh, you know, real enthusiasts uh, who are interested in more than sort of the tabloid coverage uh is that that's sort of where you're going sam absolutely you know it's like we want to we want to talk about you know what what's happening in in cars and transportation and the future of transportation and and the people that are helping to create that all right so let's get to it let's do it So the first thing we want to talk about is everybody's favorite segment from our old days on the Autoblog podcast, which is the garage and what we've been driving. Uh, and, and Sam, you are getting cars because you uh, work for Navigant. And so you've been in a couple of cool things or a couple of interesting things. I should say one cool thing, one interesting thing to a family guy like me. So we'll start with the cars you've been driving while you were out jet setting. All right, so I, I was out in San Francisco last week to uh, speak at a couple of different conferences, um, which we'll talk a little bit more about uh, a little later on. But um, while I was out there, I had the opportunity to drive the, the Jaguar F-Pace S, uh, which is Jaguar's first SUV. Um, and that's that's the cool one. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the cool one. Well, actually, the other one's the other one's pretty cool in its own right too. But you know, the the F-Pace um, was it's it's really impre- an impressive vehicle. Um, you know, it's back, back, I don't know, maybe what, about a decade, dozen years ago, uh, when they first started talking about Jaguar doing an SUV when, when they and Land Rover were still owned by Ford, um, you know, all the speculation was that basically they would, you know, get a variant of the Range Rover. Um, and of course that never came to pass. And then, you know, six or seven years ago, uh, Ford sold off Jaguar and Land Rover to India's Tata Motors and, now you know that Jaguar has got themselves reestablished. Jaguar and Land Rover have themselves reestablished with new, new vehicles, new platforms that they've designed under under Tata ownership. Um, they you know they've added a couple of new vehicles to the Jaguar lineup with the the compact XE sedan and the F Pace um, SUV, which is you know probably the the closest. Um, competitor to it you know in terms of its overall character is like the porsche cayenne um you know it's it's definitely more of a sporting crossover um you know definitely not uh not really an off-road suv 
Uh, so it's it's basically a, a, a sport wagon, you know, that rides high like an SUV. Um, and yeah, it's not that, not an intentional off-road SUV anyway, for sure. Right. So it's you know it's it, it borrows a lot of hardware from actually from the F-type um, sports car, and you know generally that's a that's a good thing. <clears throat> Excuse me. It um, you know drives really well. You know uh, while we're out in San Francisco, my wife and I uh, went down, spent the weekend in uh, Carmel. Um, and drove down to Big Sur and driving along the coast, you know, the, the roads along Route 1 along the coast there, you know, it, it definitely drives like a Jag, like you would expect a, a Jag sports car to, except, you know, obviously you're sitting up higher. So that's um, uh, like that driving means it's like slightly muscle car-ish, right? Like it's got a little bit of uh, a little bit of athleticism to it, a yeah. little bit of like the blunt force. <laughs> that like the the f-type has um, yeah absolutely it's it's got a you know it's a fairly stiff ride it's not it's not real it's not what i would call supple uh but it handles corners really well um it's got decent good steering feel um it's fairly quick you know i mean for for its size you know for an suv you know it's it's not lightweight by any stretch of the imagination but it you know a little over four thousand pounds it's it's not a real tank either so um the the f-pace s model has um it's got a 380 horsepower version of the three liter supercharged v6 uh that's in other f paces and and the base engine in the f pace is a two liter four cylinder diesel uh but the the uh s is currently the the quickest version of the f pace so it, it'll do zero to 60 in just over five seconds um and it's it's a lot of fun to drive um you know, once once we got into San Francisco, where the roads are a little more uneven and you know generally not as smooth, um, you know it you definitely feel the the compromises they made to the ride quality. Um, so it you know it moves around a little bit more, but it you know it wasn't it wasn't harsh or uncomfortable, uh, but it, it's definitely you know not as not as slick as you might have expected of a Jaguar of old. So how well was it received in uh, San Francisco, which is this this weird dichotomy of a city that's um, very conscious of luxury goods in a lot of ways these days? Um, you know, I I didn't really get any second looks over the thing. You know, I mean, no, nobody really commented on it. You know, I don't think anybody really noticed it. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of affluence in San Francisco. Um, you know, there's also a lot of uh, a lot of people that are far less than affluent in San Francisco, uh, that are struggling to get by, you know, so, you know, like any other big city, you know, it's got its share of just about any kind of vehicle, you know, there's certainly plenty of Priuses and, and lots and lots of Teslas around San Francisco, uh, including lots of Model Xs, but, um, you know, it, it, it fit in just fine. And like, in terms of, you know, one of the things that I've picked up about, the the comparisons of the the F pace is yes it's great it drives well it looks fantastic um, interior wise it it might not measure up to the the rest of the class uh, how did you feel about that um, you know at it, at its price point it starts you know the base price is only uh, forty one thousand dollars which you know it's not cheap but um, it's it's pretty good pretty reasonable value compared to say the Cayenne or or an X five um, and you know it's not it's not super luxurious, but you know the model I had the the S the F Pace S, uh, which is the the higher end model had really nice leather on the seats and uh, it was it was pretty nicely trimmed out had plenty of amenities, uh, so you know I I certainly you know at fifty seven grand 
um, compared to what you're going to get from one of the German brands, you know, I think it was probably as good or as good as good as any of those at that price point. Now, certainly you can, you know, the BMWs and Audis and, and Porsches and Mercedes, you can price those up to much, much higher price points. You know, you can easily get their midsize uh, SUVs up into the 70, 80, $90,000 range, you know, with the, with all the options and all the, all the luxury goodies. And, you know, it's certainly not going to compare to those, but it's also not priced like them. So yeah, I think they, they don't have one priced there yet. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, the thing, the thing that Jaguar has done in the past year, you know, they announced about a year ago that they were, they were going to adjust their, their pricing for the whole lineup. So they actually lowered the, the price points on every, all their models uh, about a year ago um, to get them, you know, to, you know, they had been, they had been trying to price them to, to more directly compete with the Germans and they found that wasn't really working. And so they, they lowered the prices and, uh, you know, adjusted the equipment levels, you know, so you get, you actually get a, a fairly reasonable value, you know, for compared to the segment uh, now. So, you know, they're not cheap, but, you know, I think they're, I think they're priced about right. And uh, so I, you know, I, it's certainly, let's put it this way, compared to a hundred thousand dollar Tesla, you know, I think it was um, certainly more luxurious and better outfitted um, than a hundred thousand dollar Tesla. So, I, yeah, I wouldn't complain. Yeah. Well, and the, I remember when they did that, and they, the doors work too. Yeah, the doors—they don't leak. Um, <laughs> I remember when they did that just a year ago. They offered uh, more more equipment. You know, the stuff that was bundled uh, became standard. It was bundled as an option package. It became standard, and then they they also uh, bumped their warranty. And I think they added maintenance uh or maybe maybe that's just under the lease but no i, I think it was yeah added... i think you get uh like a three or three three or four years maybe of, of complimentary maintenance included and you know roadside assistance and you know the same kind of stuff that everybody else is offering now on on new cars yeah i mean that's that's a pretty good deal i know we're talking about luxury vehicles but like the the money equation for a jaguar is, is pretty good and you know the f-pace is certainly uh going to stand out in a pretty crowded field. So it's, it's strange that like they waited, they waited so long, but when they finally brought it out, they've, they've come out with a pretty good winner. It's not any, any where near a copy of a Land Rover. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's doesn't really overlap with anything in the Land Rover lineup. You know, maybe the, about the closest thing is going to be the, you know, the Range Rover sport. Um, but even that, you know, is a bigger vehicle. And it's got a different kind of character uh, and certainly a different look from this. Um, you know, and then the, the, the Evoque, the Range Rover Evoque is a significantly smaller vehicle. So there's nothing really in the yeah. Land Rover lineup that is, you know, that is direct competitor to the F-Pace. Uh, so I think, I think they've done it right. You know, they've, they've kind of found, you know, at least what for them is a, a white space in their lineup. You know, it's certainly, you know, directly competitive with a lot of other vehicles in the segment, but it's also, you know, one of the few segments in the overall market that's growing and growing rapidly, you know, is the the smaller and mid-sized crossovers and SUVs. Yeah. Now, if we could just talk to them about that XE wagon. Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> Unfortunately, I, I doubt, you know, I doubt we'll ever see that here in the U.S. I think the F-Pace is probably about as close as we're ever going to get to a, 
a Jaguar wagon here on the this side of the Atlantic. Eh, that's all right. Um, but you, so you jumped from that, which that, like I said, that's the cool one, but you've teased the Pacifica. So we'll talk about the Pacifica, which is, is cool in its own right, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I got back to Detroit on Friday night. I picked up the, uh, the new Chrysler Pacifica, um, which is far and away the best minivan that Chrysler has ever built. Um, you know, this, this car, this vehicle is really impressive. It, you know, I mean, like, like all the, the past Chrysler minivans, or at least, you know, all but, you know, everything after about the first generation, it's really, it's huge inside. Um, you know, it's a really attractive vehicle. I, I think it's the best looking minivan on the market today. Um, better, you know, better than anything else. It drives really well. Um, you know, the, the powertrain is smooth. It's got plenty of amenities inside. They've got the, the stow and go seats, you know, for both the second and third rows. So you can, you know, you don't, if you, if you need to haul some cargo, you know, you can just drop the seats right down into a well on the floor, um, and have a flat load floor all the way up to the, the back of the front seats. Uh, you know, it's, it's got all the goodies in there. You know, it's, it's not cheap, you know, it's in the upper $40,000 range in this case, you know, because it's pretty much loaded with every, every available is, option. But yeah, is that a, a limited that you have? Uh, yeah, you know, so yeah. it's, you know, but you know, again, it's, it's priced competitively with, you know, a loaded Honda Odyssey or Toyota Sienna um, or Kia uh, Sedona. So, you know, it's it's not price. It's not out of the pricing is not out of line with the competition. Yeah, they um, are. They are not cheap. <laughs> yeah, no, no minivans are. But you know what? If you've got a family, you know, with three or more kids that you need to haul around, um, I'd much rather do it in a minivan than in an SUV. Um, it's. You know, it, especially if, if you've got younger kids that you're putting, you know, you've got to strap into booster seats or yep. or child seats. It's just so much easier with the, uh, you know, the hands-free power sliding side doors and, you know, swing your foot under the bumper to open the tailgate, that sort of thing. Um, you know, you don't have to reach up. You know, it's it's at the perfect height if you've got to strap kids in. I and mean, you know, mine are grown up and. You know, if I if I have to strap them in now, it's <laughs> it's a straight jacket. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, if if I had young kids, you know, I would I would choose a minivan over an SUV any day. But you know, hey, I'm a I'm an oddball with these sort of things anyway. No, so. I, I mean I, you're not. Um, there's there's two different things: there's the practical, and then there's the um, the emotional. And practically, nothing beats a minivan. It carries most of its load within its wheelbase. It's uh, low to the ground because it's car-based. It, it's all of the things that we love about crossovers, except for it's a box. So yeah. uh, it doesn't even have that, that you know, style. It doesn't, you know, the Pacifica doesn't really look like a box. I mean, you know, it's it's boxy, but it's it's also very stylish. I mean, they did a they did a fabulous job translating the the design language that we've seen on recent Chryslers like the uh, like the two hundred onto this onto this van and it, it looks really good yeah no i'll agree with that and um you know this is, i think this is the first the first full departure from the original t platform uh t body it, it might i'm trying to remember because they so they introduced the the, the minivan in 84 it was based on the k car but it was it was the t platform right. body and then they updated it in the it got its mid-cycle refresh, and then it got fully yeah, like updated. Like 92 or 93, they did a, a full-body redesign, but it still shared a lot of the original right. platform. Right, and then, and then in the mid-90s, they redid it again, like 95, 96. Yeah. It got very round. Um, and then, you know, they redid it 
I think there's a there's a lot of tea body. It's <laughs> still in there. Yeah, I mean this this one I I don't think that there's really anything carried over into this latest generation. Um and you know the other thing that um the the one I'm driving right now doesn't have but that will be coming out in the next month or so there uh Chrysler's actually going to be doing a media drive out in LA um in conjunction with the LA Auto Show is the plug-in hybrid version which will be a first for the minivan segment. You know, Chrysler's designed an all-new hybrid powertrain that uh, is coming in, launching in the Pacifica, and uh, no doubt will eventually show up in other vehicles as well. Um, and it's got uh, enough battery for about, uh, I think, uh, 30, roughly 30 miles of all-electric driving. Uh, so, you know, it'll be interesting to see where they price that one and, uh, you know, what kind of real-world mileage people get out of that one. Yeah, well, that's kind of your beat. Uh, so I'd be interested to hear your take on, like, why has it taken so long for uh, – it seems like such a natural fit for a hybrid or a plug-in hybrid minivan. Like, that that's such a perfect area for – besides $100,000 executive Camrys. Like, you know, this seems like a perfect venue for hybrid and electrification. Why is it taking so long? Um, you know, I think part of it is – you know the the cost. You know the the cost of batteries is starting to come down. It's come down pretty significantly in the past two three years. Uh, so that helps. You know to to get it at the right price point. Um, we've certainly over the last two three years seen a, a significant number of new models, plug-in hybrid models, show up uh, in premium brands. Uh, and you know what what we're seeing. You know from the from the Germans in particular from. Uh, Audi, Mercedes, BMW is they're they're putting plug-in hybrids into um, the bigger and, and mid-size uh, sedans and SUVs, uh, and what the, what they've done is rather than tune them uh, purely for maximum fuel efficiency, you know, like Prius style, they tune them so they get a significant bump in fuel efficiency, but they also are able to get a boost in uh, performance. So they're actually selling them uh, more as much as per, per, for, as performance upgrades as they are as efficiency upgrades, and that way they're able to get um, a higher uh, price point from consumers. You know, so they'll they'll slot it into the lineup. You know, uh, closer to the top end of the lineup from both a performance standpoint as well as the equipment they put in it, and then that way they can sell it at a price you know where they can recover the the extra cost, the incremental cost of the batteries and the electric powertrain. Uh, and so that's, you know, that's working out, seems reasonably well for, uh, for some of these brands, you know, for Porsche and, and for, uh, Mercedes Benz and BMW, you know, BMW's within the next uh, couple of years is going to have plug-in hybrid options available on pretty much their entire lineup, you know, and they started at the top, you know, with the, the seven series and the X5 and, you know, gradually yeah. working their way down. Well, and that X5 hybrid is really, really good to drive. Uh, it is. Which I was, yeah, I, I, was I had one by. a few months ago. Um, and that's so that's even with like the Honda Accord, it, it, there is that cachet to hybrid um, that it it can command that higher price. I think because you know they they generally make it a nicer car too when they're doing this now. Is is like I had the Accord hybrid not too long ago, and uh, it was it's dressed up like a premium midsize sedan. It was very nice, and it, it there was. You know, not as much weirdness as there has been with the handoff between, and the Honda's hybrid system's gotten a lot more refined. Um, but it just felt like, you know, a car with a powerful engine <laughs> didn't really notice too much of the hybridness. So, yeah, um, that's, you know, that's true of pretty much every brand now. You know, all, you know, pretty much all the latest generations of hybrids 
have become a lot more transparent. So they don't, you know, other than the quietness, you know, when you're driving them and, you know, in the, in the case of a lot of these cars uh, with plug-in hybrids, the lack of cargo space, um, other than that, you know, they, they drive pretty much like any other car. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the one, the one downside, you know, on some of the plugins, like the, uh, the Hyundai Sonata plug-in hybrid and, and the Ford Fusion Energy plug-in hybrid and some of these others is you do give up, a, you know, a significant portion of your trunk space to the battery, the extra battery. But other than that, there, you know, they, um, there's nothing, there's nothing about it really that screams, you know, plug-in or hybrid. It's just a yeah. regular car that's really efficient. I mean, the Sonata is really interesting, too, because they've got that uh, lithium polymer battery that can mold to the shape, so it actually loses less of the trunk than um, – and the battery, I think, is under the, the rear seat. Um, so they it, lose less Part of it's space. under the rear seat, yeah. I mean, yeah. It, it, it still loses about half of its trunk space, uh, but you, you do have more cargo space in the Sonata than you do in the Fusion. And it has a um, six-speed automatic, too. So I actually yeah. really like driving the Sonata hybrid. It's, it's really good to drive, too. So Yeah, no, they've done, they've done a great job on that one. Um, but yeah, getting back to the van too, uh, you know, so 30 miles when they introduced the plug-in, like most people's average one-way commute is what, like 25, something like that, 25 miles. So you could, or, or less than that, even, yes. you know, for, you know, probably for at least half the population, they drive less than 30 miles a day. So if you plug it in every night, you, you know, you could almost never use, uh, gas, you know, except for your longer trips. Yeah. Uh, that That's pretty compelling in its own right. It's not going to have, um, I think it's not going to have stow and go, right? Like that's you got to give that up. Yeah, the um, the the wells where the for the second row seats where the the seats drop into, that's where the battery goes on the hybrid. So you lose the stow and go for the second row seats, but you still have it for the third row seats. Oh, that's not too bad. Yeah, that's so it's 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 a little bit of a sacrifice, but it's it's not terrible. So instead instead of talking about future Pacificas, though, so the, the one that you actually drove, yeah, <laughs> so it was nice. Um, it it had the the Pentastar V six. Um, does it, the last one I drove was the previous generation, uh, and it, even though it had the Pentastar, like it felt heavy and like it struggled. How how is this one to to actually this, this one, just drive? This one's much better. Um, you know, for twenty seventeen, you know, they actually launched um last year on the twenty sixteen Grand Cherokees an updated version of the Pentastar. Uh, so they it's got a, a new variable valve timing system and had a bunch of other changes to it uh, to make it a little more efficient. Um, yeah, it had a small bump in power, but you know, that was fairly marginal. But overall, it drives really well. Um, you know, so there's no no real complaints about it. I mean, you know, again, this is not a lightweight vehicle. You know, it's right. it's well over four thousand pounds, uh, but you know, it's also a pretty big vehicle. Um, you know, and it's, it's got, you know, more than adequate performance for, for what it is. You know, it's not a sports fan, you know, it's, it's a, it's a people hauler and it does, it does just fine. You know, it, it's, there's nothing to complain about. It's certainly no, again, you know, it's, it's at least as good or better than the competition. Um, you know, it'll be interesting to see what Honda comes up with next year. You know, they're, uh, they're due for a new Odyssey, which I think is going to be coming out next spring. Um. And Toyota will probably have a new Sienna uh, sometime next year. Uh, so, you know, those are the other two chief competitors. But, you know, I, I, this, you know, Chrysler did a really good job on this vehicle. You know, it, it, it's it got excellent ride quality. It's got more than adequate performance. And it, um, you know, it's got, uh, you know, decent acceleration. So, so is it your favorite um, 
is it your favorite minivan in this? I want to say minivan, but like, is it your favorite of the the segment? Um, or is at this the point, CMO yeah, Odyssey? absolutely, yeah. yeah. Is that it's, you think it's just because it's the newest, or because uh, it's, it's you know? Well, I mean, it's the newest, but it's also really well executed. You know, yeah. they've they've done everything really well on it. I mean, it's it's a good looking vehicle. You know, for for what it is. Uh, I mean, even it's, I mean, regardless of what it is, I mean, it's very attractive. You know, the, the design language that um, they debuted on the, the 200 a couple of years ago, which, you know, unfortunately is going to be fairly short lived, but at least that design language actually translates really well to the van. Uh, you know, so it's, I think, you know, I think it's going to be very successful. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I mean, my previous sort of favorite in this segment was the Sienna, not just not because it was the best to drive. I think the best to drive, and I haven't tried the the Pacifica yet; it hasn't made its way to uh, to my New England driveway because uh, of the way fleets work. Um, but you know, the Odyssey is the best. The Sienna was just the best blend of you know ride comfort features. Um, none of them are. I guess if you buy the lower end trim levels, they're a decent value, but. Uh, just, you know, when you're driving a family vehicle, you just, you want something that you can just relax and put on the miles because there's enough stress. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, this one's got, you know, the, uh, the rear seat entertainment system, you know, so you've got screens on the back of the, the, the front seats, you know, for the second row passengers and they can, uh, you can put in, it's got a Blu-ray player. You can stick in a Blu-ray disc and you can have different things on each of the, the two rear screens. So you can have a kid on one side that's watching a movie and a kid on the other side, there's a bunch of games that are built into the infotainment system so they can play checkers or Sudoku, you know, they're touch screens. Um, oh, that's and, cool. and yeah, so there you've got, a, you can also, um, you know, play, uh, some, you know, play a video, you know, from, uh, from a thumb drive or, or some other, you know, some other uh, media source. So you can have two different movies going in the back seat. You know, with them listening on on wireless headphones, uh, so there's plenty of stuff to keep you know keep ocu- keep the uh, rear seat occupants busy, and uh, keep them from pestering you too much about are we there yet. And that's all the latest generation of UConnect stuff, so it's actually pretty easy mm-hmm. to use too. So that's yeah, it's got a nice interface that's uh, you know fair, it's responsive and it's a nice looking screen. So uh, yeah, no, it's it's a good vehicle. All right, well let's stay on the the people mover. Yeah, so what are you uh, driving this week? So I, so I just waved goodbye to the Nissan Armada Platinum, um, which is a very good people mover. Uh, it's also very good at using fuel. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> um, it consumed to the tune of 15.9 miles to the gallon. No matter what I did, that's the average I got. So, uh you know the trade-off is you get the the latest version of the VK56 um, V8, which is fantastic. It's 390 horsepower. It's it's very punchy. Um, it's it, it's definitely got the authority to pull this big uh, body-on-frame SUV around. Um, and you know the Armada itself in platinum trim is uh, it's pretty close to being an Infinity. Uh, it, you know the QX80 shares this this platform now um the armada is nicely turned out enough in this trim that it you don't really need the infinity and even the lower trims you know if you get the if you don't buy the platinum i think they've they've got like sv or or whatever uh for for some of the other trims it's still nicely equipped and it's not that bad a deal uh i think it starts around 50 something this one in platinum trim 
uh, lists for like sixty one, sixty two thousand. Which I mean, it's it's a lot of money for a Nissan too. But when you consider it's a three row SUV, um, it's got four wheel drive, and this one had leather seats and the infotainment, and um, you know, a big V eight. So it's capable of towing. I think it's it's towing capacity is like seventy five hundred or eighty five hundred pounds. So it can tow your boat, no problem. Um, you know, it's a very capable vehicle. It's definitely overkill if you're just going to use it like a station wagon. But there there are people that need a vehicle like this, and this is a this is a good choice. Um, you know, when you consider what it competes with, you know, it competes with the, the Expedition and the Tahoe and uh, Yukon. Uh, suburban, that kind of stuff. Um, there are there are some areas where I feel like it it does it does miss a little bit. You know, you don't get locking differentials on it. Um, I suppose that's kind of not a big deal <laughs> when it's a family vehicle, but I feel like you should at least have the option to add the locking differentials. I, I, maybe that's. It, can it you? Get, I think you can get those on the Infinity, though, right? If I believe you can. Yeah. Um, the Infinity has the. Uh, the it's got the Infinity has the air suspension, I believe, or, or just the suspension that actively manages roll. Um, the the path the uh, Pathfinder the <laughs> the Armada is a little bit more conventional. It didn't ride poorly. It just, just it had big wheels and platinum trim. So there's there's actually a lot of low frequency energy in the cabin. You'll notice as you go down a bumpy road, even just on asphalt, there's just this thrum. And I think that's just the wheel and tire package that it has. Uh, it was really nice to get on the highway and just put the pedal down and just feel this huge thing take off. Um, but again, like it, the practical side of it does fall down a little bit. It uses a lot of fuel. It actually shrank in its move from the old uh, F Alpha platform to the, the patrol platform that it's on now. The back seat is not as large. I think it's actually a little bit narrower. And the third row loses a ton of space from what it had before. Um, the, the dog was happy. He didn't care. But you can see <laughs> that the, the third row is, is less leg room. There's less cargo space uh, when it's deployed. And then when you stow it, you know, the, the way they've got the spare tire, you know, it's it's got all of those traditional SUV drawbacks. The load floor is actually high to reach up into. Um you know, you gotta you gotta have a reason to buy one of these. I wouldn't suggest buying it just because you want a three row. If you want a three row and you don't want the pain of an actual SUV, there's so many crossover choices. This becomes less of a, a compelling deal. Like, definitely, actually, go buy a Pathfinder. The Pathfinder is a better vehicle, just as a family vehicle. Yeah, I mean, if you just want a, a family hauler, you know that that you're you're right. The Pathfinder is definitely a superior choice there. It's got you know more room inside, and it's going to be a lot more fuel efficient. Um, you know, but if you're looking for something to tow with, you know, the Pathfinder is definitely not going to cut it. Um, and uh, it, you know, it it doesn't you know its its towing capability is much lower than the uh, than the Patrol, and it certainly isn't going to have. I mean, it's got some off road capability, but it's not it's not anywhere near as robust as what you can do with this thing. Yeah, this one will get you stuck way, way further away from civilization. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, the, as you you mentioned, you know, that this is based on the, the the patrol that they the Nissan Patrol that they sell everywhere else in the world outside of North America. You know, which is one of the reasons why they did this. I mean, Nissan doesn't expect this to be a huge volume seller. 
but it also it didn't take a whole lot of engineering investment to to create this you know because they already had the patrol and you had the qx80 uh and infinity dealerships and so you know whatever additional sales they get you know from this one is just you know that's incremental volume and it's very high margin volume which is why they're doing it yeah and it's not a bad truck you know it, it, oh yeah the whole week i had it i was thinking you know it makes sense that mercedes would would pick nissan to partner with uh to develop their own pickup because this this is a pretty nice truck they clearly like they they can make a good truck a good conventional truck even though that's typically thought of as the domain of of the big three here in the u.s like in the rest of the world they still need body on frame pickups and they're not buying f-150s you yeah. know? Well, so have, have you driven the uh the new titan i have not it's it's actually really good it's it's i'd say it's it's as good as the domestic pickups in almost all respects and you know um actually has surprisingly good uh driving dynamics you know good handling and good ride quality yeah it's so like that all of those we're, we're pretty present here too you know and mm -hmm. it, just that the cabin layout is good nissan's infotainment system is easy to use so it hits a lot of high notes you know it's it's a good truck but you really you got to want a truck for this it's not and especially with the nissan badge it's not the status symbol that the infinity is and and you know even that's a little dubious right well you know and that you know again that's why you know nissan's got multiple offerings you know so you can pick the the right one for your lifestyle you know the one that the one that suits your your needs you know so as you said this one's not for everybody you know probably for the the majority for the mainstream the pathfinder's the the right choice but there's a there's a niche out there that wants a vehicle like this and and so you know they're going to offer it yeah and it, like it has a reason to exist and you know having a choice between uh the, you know the domestic offerings because you know i'll get in the ex expedition and or the um yeah the expedition uh, i was thinking of the excursion but they don't make that anymore <laughs> um i'll get in the expedition and i'll just think like oh gosh this thing feels really cheap and i'll get in the uh the gms and i'll i'll feel like there's just there's something you know like they're not Goldilocks trucks. This is actually a little closer to being a Goldilocks truck it, from a driver's perspective. You know, the ergonomics are good. It's it's comfortable. It's solid. It's pretty quiet. And part of that is, I guess, that, you know, driving the Platinum trim, um, my view is colored by all of the nice stuff it had. But then again, when you look at the Platinum trim and how nicely loaded it is compared to a very well-loaded uh, domestic vehicle of the same class, it's it's a pretty good deal. Yeah, it certainly is. So what um, else you got? Yeah, speaking of good deals. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I got a Mitsubishi Outlander Sport 2.4 SEL AWC. So the, and Mitsubishi has been selling this vehicle. This was Project Global for Mitsubishi. It's been around for like a decade, this basic vehicle. Um, maybe even more. It's... I've gone on the record as really like abusive about this particular vehicle before. It's it's not bad. Um, for 2017, they've restyled it. Uh, it looks pretty good actually. I, I have never had a complaint really about the styling. Um, this is the smaller one, right? Yeah, yeah. It's the small. the The other one is the Outlander, which is the I think that's the three row. Yeah. Um, which I've also had not too long ago. Like it definitely feels. Built to a price, um, 
You know, but it has, That's a kind way of putting it. Yeah, I mean, it feels it feels a little cheap, but it is cheap. It's twenty six thousand dollars, and it's got hey, you know for for a compact uh, crossover these days. That's actually a pretty reasonable price. Yeah, it's you know it's uh, I think it's leather seats, you know, and then SEL trim. It's it's pretty well loaded. It's got you know uh, high intensity discharge low beams. It's it's got the um, the audio system that won't pair with anything. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a 2017 or a 2016 model? Uh, actually, oh, you know what? This it, got 20... a, it, it got a refresh for 2017. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the, the front fascia and the rear has been updated a little bit. It's actually it's actually a pretty decent looking. I mean, even before the refresh, it was, it was pretty decent looking. Yeah, this is weird because it, it looks all the world like a 2017, but the, the Monroney that came with it is 2016. So, yeah. Mm. Uh, I, I don't know. Maybe I, I haven't looked all that close. I've only had it for a couple of days, so I've been rocking the uh, Crown Victoria in between. Because um, I will admit, it showed up at the curb, and I was like, ugh. <laughs> Which is a, it's like, that's a total douche thing to do when you're getting free cars to drive for, for a week. You know, it's like, don't don't ever do that. <laughs> that's That's my advice to anybody who winds up in this profession. Don't get so jaded that you roll your eyes and groan at the car that shows up um, from the automaker's sort of uh, uh, best, uh, I guess they, they trust you. I don't, I don't even know yeah. what I'm trying to say. No, but. you're right. I mean, you, you, you don't, you know, you don't want to look a gift horse in the mouth and you right. know, I mean, it's not, it's not, not, I don't want to call it a gift, but I mean, for me, even for me, you know, I, I work from home, you know, so I don't have a, an office to commute to. Um, but, you know, when I get vehicles every week, you know, I make a point of going out and driving them and putting some miles on them, driving them in different conditions. And, you know, I take them to go to, to meetings and to various events, you know, uh, briefings um, with with car makers and suppliers. Uh, so, you know, I try to drive them in various conditions and, and you know, un understand what, you know, what are these vehicles all about? You know, where, where do they work? Where do they not work? And also, you know, using the using the, the features and the technology that the car makers have built into this, because this is, you know, that's an area that's increasingly important. And it's something we're going to try and talk, talk a lot about on this show, you know, is, you know, where, where's transportation going? Where are these vehicles going? You know, what's, what's the future of personal mobility and, and all the technology that's in here. So, you know, even though, you know, I usually know where I'm going, um, you know, I make a point of using the navigation and, if you know if the vehicle is equipped with a navigation system, using the navigation, using the infotainment, using the voice recognition systems, you know, to see how they work, to figure out what works, what doesn't, and and uh, you know, see how they compare, and and especially when there's new technologies, uh, like you know things like the the gesture control system in the new BMW 7 Series, um, it's it's fascinating to see how that how that stuff is changing and evolving over time. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's that's an important point, um, and that's one of the things that I wanted to do as well with this is give a real assessment of the vehicle from a a segment aware perspective. You know, know where it fits. You know, so like when we talk about the Pacifica, not just say like, well, it's not a, it's not a Boxster. Well, yes, no kidding, Dick Tracy. But it's not supposed to be either, right? Um, and that's you know, so while I can say, you know, the Outlander feels a little bit inexpensive and built to a price so, well it is um but then you you look at what they're offering with what they have too you know mitsubishi is behind the eight ball in this um this market for a variety of reasons but they they've got old platforms and yet it's the effort that they're making with old platforms is 
is decent. If you didn't know anything about what's under these vehicles, or, or if, if you weren't, you know, as into it as we are, and you just went and test drove a few things, this wouldn't feel too bad. You know, it's 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 got a 2.4 liter engine, so it's pretty spunky. It's it idles smooth. It's quiet for you know for for the most part, uh, especially for the class. You know, compact SUVs and crossovers are are not exactly the most relaxing place to be. For for twenty seven thousand dollars, it's it's pretty well equipped. So and and it drives well too, and it's always driven pretty well. Uh, my biggest sticking point is the the um, the CVT, but you know that's that's not that's not faint praise. Like it's and it it even has four wheel drive. So for that price, like, you know, its biggest competitor is what a Subaru or one of its platform cousins like the Jeep Compass or Patriot. I'm trying to think of what else really compares it. At 27k, I mean, I, I guess you can get into all-wheel drive CRVs or Rav4s, but I feel like those are, again, like a little little size class larger than the Outlander. Sport. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you look at any of the the compact crossovers like the the CRV Escape, um, you know, the 26, 27 grand is pretty much the entry point now for most of those. I mean, that's kind of like the low end. And it's it's pretty easy to get those well up into the mid to upper 30s without trying too hard. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, if you can get a, a reasonably a reasonably equipped Outlander Sport, you know, in that price range, that's actually not a bad deal. I mean, you know, the the next kind of segment down, you know, the the subcompact crossovers like the Honda H HRV and um, you know the Mazda CX-3 and a few others are are going to be in that same price point. But they're smaller, yeah. Um, and you know you're getting you know less vehicle for the for the money, right? And they're so they're also a much hotter deal too. Like the HRV, like they're they're not discounting like a Mitsubishi dealer's going right. to discount yeah, to move the metal. You got a much better much better chance of haggling for a good price at a Mitsubishi dealership than at a Honda dealership. Yeah, I mean it's you know those are all of the things that uh, fit into the equation. Um, you know, it so it's it's competitively priced it's competitively equipped it's it's making the most of what you got and i'm interested to see what comes out of mitsubishi's tie up with uh, renault nissan now too um to see what that means for vehicles for us yeah i mean uh, renault nissan just uh, just closed the deal to buy 34% of mitsubishi uh i think last week um so they now have controlling interest in mitsubishi and uh carlos gone is taking over i guess as chairman of mitsubishi uh, so he, he doesn't, he, he still gets to only be CEO of two companies, um, <laughs> but he will be chairman of Mitsubishi. Maybe he'll make his wife a Mirage convertible. <laughs> yeah. Don't say that too loud. I think you should edit that out. <laughs> All right. We should move on to the next, uh, next couple of topics. You know, we want to cover some news. We want to cover some you know tech details that d don't get really talked about uh all that much they sort of get glossed over i think part of it is the uh automotive journalism world at large um they they don't necessarily have the the focus to uh really dig in you know they they want to they want to blog about stuff and keep the posts moving um but there's there's some things that we should uh we should talk about a little bit more in depth and one of the things that you brought up was that uh, mercedes-benz has a new generation of engines and the the thing that stood out to me the most and i know they're talking about it too is that the electrical systems are 48 volts yeah uh, and so that's been coming for a while and it's it's already here on things like trucks and stuff um actually no it's not um okay 
The uh, the first 48 volt uh, systems came out earlier this year on in uh, Europe on the Audi SQ7. The new SQ7 uh, was the first car with a 48 volt system, um, and uh, Mercedes. And then they're going to be adding it to the new uh, the new generation SQ5, uh, which goes into production in the next couple of months. And then also, um, and Mercedes is bringing it out on a bunch of vehicles in 2017. So what am I thinking of them like semi trucks? They don't run forty eight uh, volt like uh, that. You know, I'm not sure what they run on semis. I, I I think they actually still mostly run twelve volt systems. Huh. All right. Or well, maybe aside, twenty cause... maybe twenty four volts. Well, yeah. I'll have to take a look into that. <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't really looked at at uh, the heavy duty truck market and their electrical systems. Um, it doesn't think, really matter much yeah. to us car people, but <laughs> exactly. So, uh, but what? Why is forty eight volts important? Like, what does it mean? for the automotive, like the, the car sector? Well, as you may have noticed, um, you know, there's a lot of new uh, features and, and functions in modern cars, um, most of which uh, require electricity to run. And with a 12-volt electrical system, which is what we've used, you know, on most vehicles since, you know, about the mid-1950s, you know, we start, they started making the transition from 6-volt to 12-volt in the 1950s, um, and by the I think by about the early 70s, the last of the 6-volt systems were pretty much gone. Um, so with 12-volt systems, uh, you're limited. You know, 12-volt systems, you know, uh, generate about um, uh, what, uh, ten, uh, 200 amps, 200 to 250 amps. Yeah. Um, and so you can get about 2.5, maybe 3 kilowatts, you know, at the high end of total electrical power from a 12 volt electrical system. You know, if you want to go any higher than that, you've got to have a significantly bigger alternator and that requires uh, a bigger drive belt, you know, takes, you know, you've got to have more tension on it in order to um, to dr drive the alternator to get that kind of to get extra anything more than two and a half to three kilowatts out of a, a 12 volt alternator. Um, and so that starts to add, you know, to friction and drag on the engine, reduces your fuel economy. So um, the what they've done, what the auto industry has done is they've pretty much, you know, they, they after a lot of back and forth, you know, in the in the 1990s, they looked at doing switching to 42 volt systems. And for a number of reasons, you know, um, mainly due, due to cost and, and a few other things, they ended up not going there. They decided that they, they you know, they made improvements in other areas, reduced the electrical loads in other areas. So they, they were able to get by without doing 42 volts. But now, you know, they're back to, to where they were, where they need extra electrical power. And so they're going to 48-volt systems. And so with a 48-volt system at... Um, yeah, at uh, 200 amps, you know, two or 250 amps, they can now run um, 12. Or they can uh, now get you know up to 10 to 12 kilowatts of electrical power, and so that means that they can they can use that electrical power for things like doing mild hybrid systems. They can start switching over things like oil pumps and coolant pumps from being engine driven to electrical. So now they can control those, you know, more, you know, can have you do control based on the actual load and, and need of those pumps, uh, go to elect, uh, electric air conditioning systems, that sort of thing. All of that reduces the loads on the engine and helps to improve your efficiency, your overall efficiency of the powertrain. And then, you know, the other thing that's coming up now is we're getting this rapid switch towards um, 
more highly automated vehicles, you know, going to semi-autonomous and then fully autonomous vehicles. And those, you know, um, as you go to, you know, autonomous vehicles, you need more electrical power for the steering for the steering gear, uh, for the electrical steering system in order to steer the vehicle under all conditions at all speeds. Um, you know, to power the sensors and the processing system. So you need we need a lot more than two and a half kilowatts of electrical power. And so that's why we're going to 48. And for, the reason why we're not going higher than 48 is because 60 volts is the threshold from a regulatory standpoint. Once you go past 60 volts, that's considered a high voltage system. So you have to start putting a lot more protections you know, against electrocution into the system. So um, 48 volts gives you enough of a margin in there. So even when you have an over voltage, you're not going to you're not going to hit that 60 volt threshold. And so it it's the kind of the sweet spot of maximizing your electrical power without having to add a huge amount of extra cost. I mean, that's just astounding. The amount of power yeah. <laughs> cars use like 10 kilowatts. Like that's 10,000 Watts. That's mm -hmm. a lot of juice. Um, and, and so you're saying like they could do like a, a mild hybrid without having a separate battery for it. It would be the same, the same basically electrical system. Yeah. That runs the main. You know, and yeah. I mean, you'll still, you know, and for at least for, you know, the, the first five or 10 years, you know, because there's still a lot of systems that run at 12 volts, you know, what we'll probably see is most of the vehicles coming to market. will actually have two batteries. So you'll have dual voltage systems. So you'll have a 12 volt, you know, probably still in most cases, a 12 volt lead battery. Um, to do, um, you know, the cold starts and then the 48 volt battery for doing, um, regenerative braking and, and, um, the hybrid, uh, stuff and to, to have store energy for all the other electrical systems. So you have a, a mix between 12 and 48 volts. Um, and no, you know, the, the 48 volt batteries in many cases will be lithium ion batteries. Uh, and the reason why they want to keep 12 volt starter batteries is because lithium ion batteries lose a lot of power at cold temperatures. And yeah. so um, the, the lead batteries do much better at cold temperatures than lithium batteries do. So the, the 12 volt lead battery will give you a reliable cold start, you know, even in winter conditions, extreme winter conditions. And then a 48 volt lithium battery will give you the storage capacity uh, and the electrical power you need for all the other stuff. You know, what, just as an example of the electrical loads, you know, it's estimated that for an autonomous vehicle for a fully autonomous vehicle, um, the steering gear for that um, at peak loads could be as four, as much as four kilowatts of wow. demand. Yeah, <laughs> that's so, a lot. Of, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, because and that's you know to give you the redundancy and everything that you need um, for a really reliable system. So that's you know that's what's driving, and that's also the reason why if you look at all the autonomous vehicles that are being tested today. Um, you know, whether it's uh, Google or Uber or Ford or GM, they're almost all either uh, hybrids or battery electric vehicles. Um, and that's because those all those vehicles have high voltage electrical systems. And so they have plenty of electrical power to, to spare to drive all these all these uh, actuators and sensors and processors. Um, you know, as we go towards production, you know, you'll probably start you'll start seeing some, um, you know, probably level three and level four you know, highly automated, but not necessarily fully autonomous vehicles that are using uh, 48 volt mild hybrid systems because they'll, they'll have enough power for those systems.
So does it also mean that we gain some efficiency with stuff like lighter weight alternators and, and um, you know, lighter weight uh, cabling or does it yeah. go the, the other way? You know, because like that's one of the things I remember just just, you know, the older cars that were six volts. They had such heavy wire um, for like the starter wire and stuff. And, uh, you know, because you've got that Ohm's law thing going on where where um watts and volts affect the amperage and really for a lot of stuff the the current is what drives the need for for thick cabling but if you have enough uh enough voltage you can reduce the amount of of uh wire which makes the car cheaper and lighter as well or, or the the gauge of the wire and that kind of stuff so yeah that's that's absolutely right i mean that's that's one of the the drivers for 48 volts and one of the reasons why you can't one of the other reasons why you can't really up the the uh, the power level from a 12 volt system, you know, to go beyond that, you know, two 200, 250 amps. If you go much beyond that, you've got to start going to much thicker cabling, uh, which adds cost and weight. You know, whereas at 48 volts, you can keep the same, or or in some cases even you know thinner cabling, you know, reduce the weight. You know, and if you go beyond 60 volts, then you have to start going back to the um, the heavier cabling again, the more robust cabling and, and heavier connectors and, and all the other things that go along with a high voltage system. So um, that's that's why, you know, 48 volts is, is kind of the sweet spot. Well, good. I look forward to it. I look forward and, and, to it. Yeah, uh... so that's, that's what Mercedes has coming out <laughs> next year. You know, they've got this family of new engines. They actually launched the first one this year with their new uh, two-liter four-cylinder diesel. Um, but, and know, that's, got that's this... in the S-Class? Um, well, the, the, the two liter, uh, diesel is in the, I don't think it's in the S class. It's in the new E class and then a couple of other models in Europe. Um, and, um, so this, this new family of engines includes both gas and diesel engines, and they're all based around, um, a 500 CC per cylinder architecture. So they've got four cylinders, inline fours. They're going to have new inline sixes, three liter inline sixes and a four liter V8. You know that all have the same basic cylinder design and combustion chamber design. You know, you know, obviously it's different combustion chambers for the gas and diesel versions, but you know a lot of common architecture between those engines. And then the uh, what's going in the new in the updated the refreshed S class. The S class is getting a mid cycle refresh next year, and it's getting um, this new three liter inline six with um, a 48-volt electrical system and, and what they're calling an integrated starter generator. So there's going to be um, an electric motor um, that also acts as the starter that's mounted you know, at the back where the torque converter would normally go, at the back of the engine. Yeah. Um, and so that'll be part of a mild hybrid system in that car. And th these, like, they're spending $3 billion, well, 3 billion euro. Like, what was the driver, I guess, for for doing this kind of stuff? Because Mercedes engines are pretty good. <laughs> they're pretty yeah, well, I mean, it's, I mean, you know, despite you know, yeah, the they have good engines now, but you know, just like over here, you know, the EU emissions and fuel economy standards are getting tougher every year, um, and you know, things are getting actually getting much tougher right now because in the wake of the whole Volkswagen diesel scandal, um, starting next year. Um, EU is going to start doing, uh, there's, they're starting to roll out what's known as the uh, world light duty test protocol. So they're replacing the, the, the drive cycle that they use for emissions and fuel economy testing, uh, that they've used for the last 20 odd years that what's known as the, uh, uh, the NEDC, the new European drive cycle. 
which is no, obviously no longer new. They're replacing that with the WLTP cycle. Um, and that's going to include um, real-world testing. So it's not all just in the lab. It's actually on-the-road testing as well. Uh, so they've, they've developed test protocols for over-the-road testing. And so the new, the new Mercedes engine family and, and everything else coming out, um, you know, they're phasing this in starting in 2017. And by 2020, everything will be tested according to this, these new test standards. Um, so they've got to meet those, you know, so they've got to hit, you know, ever lower, uh, CO2 emissions targets, um, and, you know, tougher, uh, standards on, uh, NOx and, um, uh, particulates and, and other emissions. And one of the things about the, uh, these new, the, even the gas versions of these engines, um, they're going to be the first, uh, the first gas engines that use uh, particulate filter, just yeah, like the, I, I uh, saw the that. diesels. Does that mean they're going to have like DPF and that kind of stuff and they're going to need to go into like regen and burn off the, the particulates in the trap or is it yeah. some kind of different system? No, it's, it's basically the same, same type. I mean, you know, the, the frequency of, of regen, um, regenerating the filter will be, I think will probably be a lot less than what it is with a typical diesel. Uh, cause they, you know, the particulate levels are much lower to start with, with the gas engine than, than with the diesel, but they, they will have to go through that same kind of cycle. Um, and the reason why is, um, it turns out that, uh, direct injected engines, um, actually produce, uh, more particulates generally than oh, yeah, port injected yeah. engines. Um, and that's, you know, so that's, that's led to some interesting, uh, phenomena. If you look at some of the, the latest engines, you know, so Mercedes is adding, um, a, a particulate filter to their new direct injected gas engines. Um, here in the U.S., um, the, the updated, the second generation Ford 3.5 liter EcoBoost that's launching in the 2017 pickup trucks. Um, you know, you may have noticed that, uh, it's using both, um, direct injection and port injection. Um, and so what they're doing is they're actually using part of the reason why they're using the, the port injection. So they've got two injectors for every cylinder is for the scenarios where the direct injection will tend to give you higher particulate emissions. That's partly where you're going to be using the port injection instead. So that allows them to avoid having to use a particulate filter. Um, and similarly, um, when Chrysler updated the Pentastar last year, um, part of the reason why they did not switch to direct injection because it, they don't have a turbocharged version of the Pentastar. It's, it's only normally aspirated. So you don't get as much benefit from direct injection on a normally aspirated en engine. Um, and so they stuck with port injection again so that they would not have to use um, a particulate filter going forward. Yeah, well, and one of the other issues with direct injected vehicles is that because the injectors aren't firing on the backsides of the intake valves, uh, they've had there's been a pretty good amount of issues with those valves getting carboned up and needing to be uh, cleaned off, you know, manually, which is very expensive. And when yeah. you've, you've bought this, you know, fancy new car with all the new technology, it's it's kind of uh, alarming to hear that you know you need to have the the cylinder uh, the intake path you know soda blasted or whatever. Um, so yeah, it's it's interesting to watch how that technology plays out because it certainly has benefits for um, you know power. It's you can run a higher compression with it, and that means you get more efficiency and and ultimately more more power out of it. Um, it these side issues, I don't I don't know if they just didn't come out in in the initial 
development testing or if it was you know something that we knew we were going to have to solve eventually <laughs> so, well i think that i think you know they they knew they would have to solve it eventually it's just you know the the standards you know as as they do you know from time to time are getting more stringent you know so they um starting in 2017 um, you know, they're phasing in the here in the U.S. They're phasing in the tier three emission standards, which cut the uh, par the allowable particulate emissions even for gas engines. I think in half or maybe less. I have to, I can't I can't remember. I have to go back and look. Uh, but it it's a significant cut in particulate allowable particulate emissions. So that's why for 2017 you're starting to see these these updates come uh, being phased in. Uh, so they they you know they've known for a while they would have to do it eventually. It's just, you know, it wasn't necessary under the previous emission standards. Yeah. Well, and that's, you, you were, you spent time at um, an automaker in your career. So anytime this stuff really ratchets up, you know, there's, there's the hue and cry that goes up like, oh, we can't meet it. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then magically, well, not magically, but, you know, then, then they do, you know, they either wind up eating the cost for a while or passing the cost on to the consumer or both. Um, and like, quite honestly, like that's, that's okay to me. Like I understand they're difficult standards to meet, uh, and they, they have side effects, you know, especially you look at the early emissions controls from the seventies, they definitely killed performance oh, yeah, for a while. They, they had a lot of side effects. Um, but uh, on the other hand, they were pushing the engineering and the technology of the day, uh, to a point where it hadn't gone before. And, and just like, you know, lots of, of clever engineering and and problem solving um and eventually we we got there you know that the average fleet economy went up it, it peaked in about 1987 and it's been falling ever since but uh well it was it was until until about 2010 and then it's been climbing again has it been since climbing then. again okay yeah. so clearly my information is old <laughs> yeah you, should, you need you need to read the uh, fuel economy trends report from epa that sounds um, fascinating it's, <laughs> it's got well it, it actually it actually there is a lot of interesting stuff in there um I'll send you a link to it uh, tomorrow. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it, basically it's got all the data going back to 1970 when they first started imposing emission controls, you know, for fuel economy and emissions and, and all, all the other stuff. Um, so you can compare how it's changed over time. And it did stagnate, you know, for, you know, 20-odd years from the mid-'80s until the mid-2000s when it started to go up again. Um, you know, they, they hit the thresholds, you know, the original CAFE thresholds in the mid-'80s. And then, as CAFE didn't change, you know what the, what manufacturers started to do was they said, you know, the, and the technology kept evolving. They said, well, we're we're able to meet the the CAFE standards that are un, that are, haven't changed, but we can increase the the performance of these engines um, without uh, without hurting fuel economy. So what what we saw over the next twenty years from from the mid nineteen eighties until the mid two thousands was that average power levels of new engines more than doubled, you know, yeah. without hurting fuel economy at all. So effectively the, you know, what, what's known as specific fuel economy, the amount of fuel it takes to make a certain amount of, a given amount of power did actually double. It's just that we were using it to make more power instead of just for more fuel efficiency. So if we'd stayed at the same power levels, you know, with 140 horsepower Mustangs that we had in 1985, yeah. Um, then you know we would have had you know thirty five mile thirty five mile per gallon Mustangs in two thousand five. And that was the V eight. Remember? Yeah, that was with the V eight. <laughs> it was a five liter. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so in, instead, you know, we now have you know five hundred, six hundred horsepower, you know, Mustangs and Camaros and and 
and even, you know, 300 horsepower minivans, you know, a 300 horsepower minivan in 1984 would have been unheard of. Yeah. It was, that was insane. Uh, but now it's, you know, it's, it's, it's the standard. Uh, so, you know, the, the, the development of the, uh, the microprocessor, you know, was key to that, you know, enabling, um, electronic controls for everything, you know, sensors and, uh, the electronic control systems was the key to making all that happen. Yeah, well, and that, and that's just continued. You know, all the features we enjoy now uh, are really possible. Just the way cars have gotten so sophisticated, um, and that that's a really good point for us to actually pivot to the other topic we wanted to cover this episode, which is you know autonomous vehicles and uh, your friend and mine, George Hotz. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I'd call him a friend. But, <laughs> um, but you know. Cars these days, and it's like back in the day, every system was its own system, and they didn't talk. They were wired separately, usually. Now we have integrated command and control. It's you know it's the idea of sensor fusion uh, picked up from stuff like uh, fighter jets, where the sensors are on a bus, and it's it's networked communication, and everything can talk to everything else. That's what enables stuff like even the semi-autonomous safety features that we've got already. Um, And, you know, so George Hotz was working with his company, comma.ai, to develop an aftermarket um, autonomous vehicle system. And you were supposed to talk to him. And they got a little, hey, you should watch out letter. Um, (laughs) And then they decided to just throw up their hands and not do their thing. Yeah, so you know, a little background on uh, Mr. Hotz for those that are unfamiliar with him. Um, he first came to be known publicly uh, in 2007 uh, at the age of 17 when um, he was part of the group that uh, did the original jailbreak on the first generation iPhone a few months after it was launched. Um, and then in the following years, he also uh, jailbroke the Sony PlayStation 3 and got sued by Sony for that. Um, for infringing on their intellectual property, uh, that suit was eventually dropped. Um, over over the years, he's uh, had stints working at Google and Facebook. Uh, short stints. It turns out apparently uh, apparently he doesn't get along well with others. Um, but uh, you know he's he's worked on a, a number of interesting projects. And um, about a year ago, he popped up again. Um, he, uh, he started working on his car. He decided to try to do, add autonomous capability to his own personal car. He had a Honda ILX. And um, uh, around about December of last year, The Verge did a story on him, uh, on what he was doing. And then a few months later, he got a $3 million investment round uh, from some Silicon Valley investors um, and launched the company, Comma.ai with the intention of launching a product, basically creating an aftermarket um, autonomous driving system that you could add to your own car for a thousand bucks and wanted to have it on the market by the end of 2017. Um, and then uh, in September, this past September, he went on stage at TechCrunch Disrupt in San Francisco, um, showed off uh, what he called the Comma One, his, his uh, product that was initially going to be compatible with the, the ILX and the Honda Civic. Um, and it included a uh, processor and a camera um, and then uh, would plug into the OBD2 port uh, and use the radar sensor that's already in the car um, if you had the adaptive cruise control. Um, and then um, last Friday, 
he was supposed to deliver do a keynote at a conference that I was chairing in San Francisco on autonomous cars. Uh, and as I was walking into the venue on Friday morning, I was looking at my phone and saw in my news feed, um, Comma.ai cancels its uh, Comma One product um, after getting a letter from uh, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. And I got inside and uh, found out that, uh, yeah, they had, they had canceled. He wasn't going to be there. And so I had to uh, get up and talk in his place. Um, I've been trying to reach out to uh, to HOTS and to others at Comma.ai for the last six months and uh, to talk to them and, and learn more about what they were doing. And uh, no one from Comma.ai has ever responded to any of my inquiries. Yeah, and just the way, like, so I should preface this by saying, like, his, it's it's nothing if not ambitious. And, and we need that. Uh, I think we, we do need ambitious people to push odd audacious goals like that's that's good um but the valley has this reputation for being um arrogant and you could say that and childish and and very insular and my, so on the outside i'm i'm completely across the country from them and my impression is like they got this letter that said hey you know um we understand you're doing this thing to make this product, uh, there's a few things you should know. And if you're going to sell it, um, you're going to be subject to this scrutiny and these regulations. And, you know, you're really going to have to make sure that you, you can pass these tests. Uh, it wasn't a gotcha, uh, in, in any stretch, uh, of the imagination by, by NHTSA. Um, it seemed actually pretty cordial. <laughs> it was yeah, like, no, I mean, it was, it was a, very not it was not a nasty letter even no. they just said you know hey you know we, we heard what you're doing we've got some questions we want to, we just want to make sure that you know what you're going to planning to put out there is actually going to be safe and isn't going to endanger the people yeah. driving these vehicles or others on the road and you know if you're tampering with existing safety systems on the car you know that's something you should be aware of you know uh, so you know as soon as i got the letter you know comma.ai said Okay, fine. We're canceling the project. Yeah, which is uh, moving on to something like, else. That's crap. Like, like there are federal motor vehicle safety standards. They're they're published. They should have known that they were going to be subject to sort of you know working within those guidelines, and just to throw up your hands and be like, yeah, you know what, we're done. We're out. Like you have an opportunity to actually work within the guidelines and and build the product and still be the first to the market, even if you have to delay it, if you need more funding. But just to give up is like you know, somebody else is going to fill that void at some point. Oh yeah, I'm, I'm sure they will. You know, and you know, let me just say that I, I have the the utmost respect for for George Hotz and and his skills. Um, but you know, honest to be honest with you, after seeing what he's done in the past week, um, I'm frankly glad that you know this project has been canceled um, because <laughs> I I have a I have a suspicion that um, it would not be very reliable um, and that. A lot of people would have bought this thing, not really, not really fully understanding what its limitations are, and you know it has some serious limitations. You know, I mean, basically, you know, they've only been testing this thing, you know, in and around the Silicon Valley area, um, and I can I can imagine, you know, people in all kinds of places, you know, getting this thing and bolting it into their car, and and then you know having it um, just simply you know not function properly or not function at all you know in in bad weather conditions you know if it snows or rains right. or you know all kinds of other conditions 
and then you know getting into accidents that either you know injure or kill themselves their passengers or other people on the road um and you know i i think you know if you're going to put things like this in a car you know it's it's your responsibility before you put something like this on the market to make sure that it really is safe you know and i you know i firmly believe that you know it, um ultimately autonomous vehicles will prove to be much safer than human drivers in in most conditions and you know it will you know the the shift towards autonomous vehicles you know will will save you know countless lives every year as well as you know uh reducing congestion um and improving air quality and and efficiency energy efficiency and i think you know i think that's all those are all good things um but i want to make sure that you know along the way that we don't take any shortcuts uh because those shortcuts you know could could be very costly yeah well and it seems like they had done the easy part you know the the easy part is as surprising as it seems like the easy part is to connect the pieces together and get them working the hard part is all the fine tuning the environmental uh you know the algorithms for it to deal with with environmental conditions and weather like not even if there's snow on the ground, but imagine a heavy rainstorm or even, you know, a snow squall is going to really confuse a camera-based system, you know, especially at night. Uh-huh. Um, those are all things you, you have to figure out how to make that work. And it's not that it can't be done. I mean, the Subaru EyeSight system's pretty incredible for, for what it does. And it's it's very similar to, to the, the Comma 1 in that sense where it's camera-based and then it ties in with all of the, the other systems. Um you know, so they've that that's been worked out to a degree. It's not fully autonomous, but it, it has some of that logic. Um, there's, it's just, yeah, that's, that's a lot of challenges to overcome. You know, one one of the things, you know, one of the you know big philosophy in Silicon Valley, you know, is um, to fail fast and iterate. You know, that this is the thing that everybody in the valley talks about doing. You know, they they want to you know try different things. You know, see what works, see what doesn't. You know, toss the things that don't and move on to something else. And that that's cool for an R and D perspective. That works well. And great. You know, I mean, during my engineering career, you know, I I started. You know, I graduated in 1990 and worked for 17 years. You know, in the auto industry as an engineer, and that's that's what we did every single day of my engineering career. We fail fast and iterate. You know, what we didn't do was we didn't we didn't put those products into customer hands until we iterated to the point where we were confident that it was actually going to be safe yeah and that's that's the the difference you know you can you can put out a you know what they call a minimally viable product you know if you're putting out you know a messaging app or building a uh you know a, a camera filter app or a social network you know because if it fails it's no big deal you know, you reboot it and you go on. You know, it's not going to kill anybody. But with a car, you know, if you're putting safety systems into a car, you know, the the level of what is actually viable is much much higher. Yeah, you know, and I I think it's it's critically important that everybody remember that. Um, you know, and I when when I got up and spoke last Friday, you know, I told this story about um, you know back in the early '90s. Uh, I was in northern Sweden working on a traction control system. And at the time, you know, I, I was looking as I was looking at the data, you know, I mean, when we were doing this development, especially, you know, winter development, summer development, we were working fast. We were making dozens of changes, you know, or hundreds of changes every day, you know, recompiling, you know, code, you know, 20 times a day, you know, reflashing it into the into the car and going out and, 
and doing more launches, doing more stops, you know, running around the handling course and looking at the data. And, you know, when I was looking at the data doing the traction, doing this traction control work, I noticed a, a correlation between the way the wheel speeds were, be, you know, were behaving and when the car was oversteering or understeering. And so I thought, well, okay, maybe I can put together an algorithm that detects oversteer and understeer. And I did that, you know, and in those days, all we had to work with was the wheel speeds. You know, for the traction, uh, for ABS, we only had wheel speeds and the brake switch. And for traction control, we also had um, uh, engine torque feedback and the accelerator pedal position. But we yeah. didn't have any accelerometers <laughs> to work with, no like yaw rate right. or any, any of the other things that you have in stability control systems today. Your processors and, were like a like a, a 8086 and a, you know, 555 timer. Yeah, well, it was actually, it was actually uh, an Intel 80C196, you know, which was uh, pretty close to an 8086. It was a actually a derivative of the 8086 for automotive applications. Right, so it was, it was like lower power and uh, oh, a yeah, more was, robust. Yeah, yeah I, I think it was uh, maybe... Uh, 12 or 16 megahertz. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was bad. But it's, anyway. it's amazing what you can do with those things and, and the software, like, oh, the yeah, especially, when you're, especially are... when you're writing everything in assembly code. Yeah. But they're amazing. Anyway, I, I put together this algorithm that, you know, actually did a pretty reasonable job of detecting, you know, oversteer and understeer and, and even estimating the lateral acceleration based on what the wheel speeds were doing. And, it, you know, had it working pretty well around a handling course going around, you know, uh, you know, cut through the snow on a, on a frozen lake. Um, and then at the end of the winter, you know, and that, that took me, you know, a couple of weeks to get that, get that tuned in pretty well. And at the end of the winter, we came back to Michigan and started testing it on other surfaces and realized that, okay, you know, we've got some problems here. This, you know, there's just not, the system is not going to be reliable enough, you know, when, when the car really starts sliding hard. Um, and it's, it's not going to be a robust enough algorithm without more sensor inputs. And so what we did was we decided to shelve it, but, you know, there was actually a part of it that worked well, you know, which was just the cornering detection, which we ended up incorporating into the ABS and into the traction control. And it was in there for, you know, at least the next dozen years and may still be there today for all I know. Um, but that, you know, that part of it, you know, we, we figured out, okay, here's, here's what actually works and only put that part into production. The rest of it, you know, we we had to wait until we had more sensors and we could do it more do it reliably. We didn't put out something that, you know, that would work great under one condition and not anywhere else. Um, especially, you know, if the driver can't select that or we can't expect the driver to be able to select it. And really, I think that's that's what you're potentially putting out with comma one was something that could work okay in in certain conditions, but wasn't. You know, I don't think was really going to be robust enough to work reliably under all conditions. Yeah. And so that's, I think the ongoing challenge with everybody developing autonomous tech. And I know that you've, you've really dug in uh, to covering this and understanding it and, and just following the developments of it. Where, where do you come down on autonomous vehicles? I mean, certainly they're, they're coming whether we like it or not. Uh, but like, what do you see the future of that, that looking like, you know, you hear predictions anywhere from like, Oh, in, in a year, we're going to have self-driving cars and it's going to revolutionize everything uh, to, you know, other folks saying, you know, it, that's 15 to 20 years off. I think, you know, for widespread adoption, it's definitely closer to 15 years. It's going to be late 2020s before we get into really mass adoption. Um, you know, we're, you know, there's definitely stuff being tested today and they're, they're only just now starting to test, you know, under, 
you know, a much wider variety of conditions and they're starting to test edge cases. And, you know, I mean, the, the rule of thumb in engineering is, you know, you get this 90-10 rule. It takes you 10% of the time to do, you know, 90% of the work, but that last 10% that is all the edge cases, that's what takes you 90% of the time and effort. And they're just getting started on that part of it. So I think, you know, what we're going to see, you know, is early 2020s, like 2021, uh, or so, you know, when you know companies like Ford and and Volvo and others have said they're going to have autonomous vehicles on the road, that's you know that's that's about the right time frame. You know, so about five years from now, you know, we're going to see these vehicles deployed in ride hailing services, and only in specific places where they're confident that the system is going to work reliably and robustly. You know, where the conditions are right. You know, where you've got well marked you know, lanes and, and you've got good high definition maps and, and all the other elements that you need for a reliable um, autonomous uh, operation. And then over time, as the technology continues to evolve, develop, it'll get rolled out, you know, to more and more places. But I think, you know, what's going to happen is we're going to see these deployed in primarily in, in ride hailing services and on-demand mobility services, you know, which is what they're testing now in places like Singapore. You know, they've got a test going with Newtonomy and Delphi is going to be joining that shortly uh, with a fleet of their own vehicles, you know, basically autonomous taxi services. And I'm increasingly of the opinion that um, you may never actually be able to, individuals may never actually be able to buy an autonomous car. I think that they may only be available to us through these uh, mobility services for a number of reasons. One, the, the cost is going to be very high, um, you know, and also, you know, by by controlling them through these through these services, you know, where you use them as needed, you know, you can you can keep the cost to individuals lower, um, but it also, you know, the the manufacturers can actually make sure that the vehicles are properly maintained, that they're serviced with the right parts, you know. You don't want cheap third-party sensors being put into these things or, or actuators. You know, you want the correct parts being used in these things. Um, and I think that um, you know the the manufacturers will actually be the run the ones running most of these uh, services. So I think you know I don't think that um, standalone companies like Uber and Lyft are going to exist uh, by you know the mid to late 2020s. I think that they will get absorbed into the the car makers. So, I mean, why the why the push to this though? Like, what what's the driving factor behind all this? Other than you know, people seem to want it. Well, um, you know, we had um, thirty five thousand people die on the roads in this country last year. Uh, we're on pace for over thirty seven thousand this year. More than a million people die on the roads every year globally. Um, you know, in twenty fourteen, for the first time, more than half the world's population lived in cities, lived in urban areas. And that, you know, as population continues to grow, the UN projects, you know, that population is going to be somewhere around 9.7 billion by um, 2050, and somewhere between two thirds and three quarters of those people live in in cities. You know, so we've got right now we've got 20 some mega cities of more than 10 million people. Um, by 2050, that's going to be in the mid 40s. Um, you know, you've, we've we've all seen the pictures of places like. Beijing and Mumbai and and you know even you know Manhattan and San Francisco and, and LA the traffic you know these, these enormous traffic jams and that's only going to get worse and you know it's you can't 
um, you know, as as you have more people living in cities that want to get around, um, you know, you can't expand the road infrastructure. You can't put in more road capacity because you've got buildings and everything. So it's just not realistic to do that. So somehow you have to figure out how do you move more people more efficiently, you know, um, while with while containing the the road infrastructure. And one way to do that is to have fewer vehicles that are in use more of the time, you know, that are shuttling people around so you don't have to have parking for the vehicles. Um, you know, you can you can have vehicles that are sized to the application. You know, when you've got people traveling alone, you don't need to have a big minivan or SUV. You can have small pods that take them around. Um, you know, so you can have a variety of different vehicles, you know, depending on what people's needs are at any moment, you know, for any particular trip that can get the right kind of vehicle. So you can you can optimize the whole system a lot more, and get um, you know get everybody just get everybody moving around more efficiently you know and then combine that you know in a in a multimodal system with mass transit so you got mass transit you got buses and subways for the high density routes and then um, the autonomous vehicles for uh, the first mile and last mile to get people to their final destinations. So what you've described is basically uh, light rail. <laughs> Um, <laughs> or, or public transportation well, in some way. Um, it, it's yeah, but it's it's a different kind of public transportation. You know, instead of you know public transportation, you know traditional public transportation, you've got vehicles. You know, whether it's buses, trains, whatever, they operate on fixed routes. You know, going from one point to another. Um, whereas you know what I'm describing is more point to point personal mass transit. So you okay. can move move people around. So you can go from any point in a city to any other point in a city, whenever you need to, wherever you know, uh, under any conditions. Uh, so you're not you're not restricted to the the fixed routes that you have for your mass transit systems. Yeah, and that fits well, sort of, with the uh, highly personalized uh, consumer desires, I guess, and and uh, society that we've got. And, and it it does make sense. Um, for a tinfoil hat guy like uh, me, I guess, it kind of makes me wonder, like, as things get more and more sophisticated, I find myself liking less and less sophisticated cars. <laughs> um, like, Hence I, the 1999 Crown Victoria. Correct. Uh, I really like how dark that cabin gets at night. Like, I can focus on the road because it's got about 10 watts of high, uh, headlight power, too. You, you need to get yourself one of those, uh, was, I guess, the early 90s or mid-90s Saab with the... Uh... Uh, what, the night what they panel? Call yeah, and basically yeah. it would turn off everything except you know, the speedometer and tack, and maybe even maybe even just just leave the speedometer lit. Yeah, uh, didn't even leave the tack lit up. You know, and I so could probably turn off all the other lights. I could probably wire the Crown Vic uh, more efficiently than I can get a Saab that actually works. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and I'm also like uh, one of my one of my projects will be to wire the headlights to individual relays um, so that I can run them directly off the battery. And they will be brighter, and then I can run higher wattage bulbs and all of those fun things. Um, but, uh, it, you know, how am I going to share the road with a bunch of automated cars that, uh, you know, I'm I'm the variable in that situation. I'm the unpredictable variable uh, until I'm legislated out of, uh, uh, you know, the ability to use the roads. And that's that's kind of what spooks me is at a certain point, there's going to be this this undeniable friction between uh the high tech and the the those who choose not to adopt the technology well, let, let me ask you let me ask you a question dan do you actually enjoy driving into central boston uh no 
Um, only, only off hours. Okay. So here, here's kind of, you know, what I, what I foresee probably happening, um, you know, in the mid 2020s and beyond. And, and a lot of these big cities, you know, increasingly, I think, you know, what, like, you know, today, if you go to London, if you go to England, um, you know, they've got a in central London, there's a congestion zone. And if you want to drive into that congestion zone, you have to pay 25 pounds a day to drive your car into the congestion zone. That's like 30 something bucks, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, what, you know, imagine, you know, in 2025, instead of paying 20, 25 pounds a day to drive into the congestion zone, when you get to the perimeter of that zone, you just park your car and you get in a little pod that takes you to your final destination. And you don't you don't have to deal with the traffic and and the congestion and trying to find your way around. You know, you just tell it where you want to go and it takes you there, and then it goes off and picks somebody else up. Yeah, and that's what I foresee happening is I think cities, you know, will probably you know once we have some confidence in these systems, cities will probably ban human driven vehicles from urban centers and only allow autonomous vehicles within those zones. And over time, those zones will get bigger, you know, expand outwards, you know, towards the perimeter of the city. And eventually, you know, you'll only be driving out in the outskirts or, in the, you know, on country roads, which is really the place where you actually want to take control of the car anyway, right? Yeah, no, and like, honestly, the last few times I've gone into Boston, I've done essentially that, you know, I'll park at... Uh, we, you know, there's there's the subway, so I'll park at a Green Line stop, and I'll take the Green Line in, and it's instead of going going into Boston in a car is expensive. You got to park somewhere. It's yeah. Like, it, the last few times I've gone, I've been in the financial district. Parking there is like forty bucks for not too long. Uh, so I've parked the car. I, you know, walk maybe a you know half mile uh, to the actual Green Line stop. It's. 275 or, or something one way so a round trip is like 550 there's you know i get on the green line train boston's a small enough city i can get anywhere in the city off the the green line or, or you know off the subway like i can take the green line and hop onto the other lines there's only like four lines um that's great in that environment but not every city has that so i, I guess i can see your point um my concern is i guess when that that radius starts to get larger <laughs> you know um when when that zone starts to expand because you know if you're gonna outlaw it that's that's cool if you've made the alternative attractive and available it's you know one can't lag the other and we saw this um you know again like transit around boston we we had uh if you look at the way the highways go there's there's two rings there's uh you know interstate 95 that that rings the city in the sort of near suburbs there's Interstate 495, which is, you know, maybe 15, 20 miles further west, and it goes around even further, and they, they eventually connect up, you know, and it's like that all the way down the east coast. You've got the, the sort of 95, and then if you want to go around 95, you've got the, the, the you know, the 395, 195, 295. Um, in Boston, there was supposed to be a closer ring that they never built. And so that's my concern is, like, you're going to have these plans in place, and then they're going to get sort of confused and and translated and politically messed with that they're not going to be fully implemented so we're going to have this this on the one hand this great idea this great plan and on the other hand we're going to have you know crappy implementation and nobody's going to be able to get anywhere 
Oh, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's going to be a total. It's going to be a total mess for you know at least the next twenty five, thirty years. Well, that's um, a great <laughs> positive outlook. <laughs> but you know, we we need we need challenges to you know to keep our brains stimulated and and you know need need things to problems to try and find solutions to. And so that's that's what we're doing wheel bearings for, so we can figure out all those solutions and and tell the world about it. Yeah, well, good. We, we have blathered. I'm looking at the clock now. We've been we've been going for a while, a little more than an hour and a half. And I know that this episode is a little looser because it's the first episode. We, we've got some structure that we will put in there. Um, you know, we definitely want to hear some some listener correspondence. So so uh, we have an email set up that people can write to us. Um, it's a it's a Gmail. It's uh, what is it, Sam? You you know it off the top of your head. Oh. And we, I knew Damn it! I don't know what I'm my head. It's wheelbearingscast at uh, gmail dot com. So wheelbearingscast, W H E E L B E A R I N G S C A S T at gmail dot com. And uh, we'll, you and I will have access to that, and we'll we'll try to answer uh, listener emails. And you know, if you've got any suggestions for the show, topics you'd like us to talk about. Um, we're going to be incorporating in upcoming episodes, uh, interviews with, uh, some of the interesting people in the industry, uh, when we get a chance to talk to them. Um, and, uh, I'll be out at the LA auto show, uh, week after next. Uh, so hopefully I'll get some good interviews out there and we'll, we'll just keep blathering on about, uh, you know, what, what we think is interesting in the world of, uh, cars and transportation. Yeah, and I'm sure there's going to be lots to, to talk about. And we picked wheel bearings because they, they kind of, you know, after sometimes they run nice and smooth and true, and then they get old and cranky and they grumble and they growl. And that's... <laughs> well, you know, and, and the word bearings, too, you know, implies direction, you know, and we're, we're talking about, you know, the direction of where things are going and trying to figure out what that direction is and, and understand why we're going there. So um, I think, you know, it's been a, hopefully uh, an entertaining first show and uh, we'll try and keep it going. Yeah, I agree with that. So thanks for listening, and uh, we will see everybody next episode. These are going to come regularly, so uh, yeah, stay tuned. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.